ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. How many times have you moved house in your life? I'm up to 21, plus that year we spent in a caravan. And each time I lug around boxes full of things. I bet you've got things that you've kept with you through moves between homes or jobs or countries or relationships. But the meaning of those objects might be a bit opaque sometimes, even to ourselves. In her new book, The Things We Live With, Gemma Nisbet traces some very human stories through the collections that she's made and the memories they inspire. Gemma, welcome to Life Matters. Thanks for having me. You begin with a story about your father that's linked to an object, a painting. Tell me about mm. that. Yeah, so my, uh, I guess my window into things and being interested in, in the, way, the roles they play in our lives was uh, something probably a lot of people can relate to, which is uh, losing my dad when I was 20 and kind of receiving uh, in the aftermath this kind of influx of objects uh, connected to his life, including this kind of very unattractive uh, oil painting of a man uh, which had always been in our house when I was growing up. Uh, and so, you know, in the kind of years since then, I've been sort of sifting through these objects, trying to make sense of them, uh, trying to make sense of my memories of my dad uh, through those objects and using those objects uh, to do that as well. And tell us a bit about your dad. Why did this painting remind you of him so much? Yeah, so the painting is kind of a, uh, you know, I had always thought of him as kind of a knockabout Aussie bloke, you know, a kind of Bushman figure. Uh, and my dad was someone who spent a lot of time in the bush. He was an uh, exploration geologist. Uh, and growing up, you know, I had always closely associated him actually with uh, the Bush Tucker man, uh, Les Hiddens. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, who I'd grown up watching on TV. So it kind of all felt to me like uh, Australian men cut from a similar cloth. Yes, that quiet, self-contained control in mm. some situations, you know, the stiff upper lip. But understand mm. that, Gemma, that's a reality about your father and yourself that you came to question as you got older. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, as I grew up, I came to question, I guess, that kind of cultural archetype of, of the Bushman, uh, but also, I guess, the costs of that kind of self-containment and that kind of self-control uh, that I'd seen from my father as I came to understand uh, you know, the struggles that he'd had with his mental health over his life. You know, he had depression. Uh, it was something that he found difficult to deal with. And, you know, particularly uh, at, at a point in my own life, about 10 years after he died, where I found myself uh, in kind of a, a mental health crisis of my own. And so it started to take on a, a new resonance for me then. So how did you navigate that that tension that you write about between uh, self-restraint and release? Because you write really powerfully about how things would build up to a point where you couldn't contain them anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the things I write about in the book is kind of um, learning to deal with... Um, you know, being able to talk about these things. And I think that was something that was really helpful to me. And also learning to kind of uh, find words uh, both on and off the page to make sense of these experiences and to share them, you know, I guess in a way that my dad wasn't necessarily uh, able to do. So bring us back to the the objects, the, the things people passed on to you uh, kindly. I'm sure they were meant after he died. Mm. What meaning did those objects come to have for you? Yeah, I mean, they kind of came to represent for me all the different facets of my dad as a person. You know, like everyone, he was 
multifaceted. Um, he was contradictory. Um, he had wonderful qualities and less good qualities. And he also, you know, had different kinds of aspects to his personality and his interests. So I guess I was trying to reconcile uh, the multiplicity of a, a person and the complexity of a person, uh, particularly when you're remembering them, uh, obviously, when they're not around, and also, you know, remembering them when you've only been able to get to know them in certain ways. You know, I was only 20 when he died, and I guess when you're a child and a teenager, you only know your parents in certain kinds of ways. So it enabled me to uh, get to hear other kinds of stories about him, about other aspects of his life, and get to know him, um, I hope, in a kind of more complete way. Well, yeah. I mean, when you think about the complexity of a human being, if you then pick up and put down all the objects that, that you have pertaining to them, uh, you, you write that, you know, the decision to give something away, the decision to keep something was easy, but the decision mm. to give something away was hard. Tell us a bit about mm. that process for you. Yeah, so I guess it began um, not that long after my dad died. I went uh, and visited my stepmom in England. She and my dad had been living in the UK. Uh, and she was doing that thing of going through a lot of his possessions, which is a really difficult thing to do. Uh, and I was sort of faced with this avalanche of you know, pictures and books and um, you know, pieces of paper that he'd scribbled on and uh, all kinds of things that, you know, wouldn't necessarily have felt very significant had he still been around, but kind of had became incredibly precious, you know, because he wasn't uh, alive any longer. So we kind of had that, to do that process of thinking, you know, what can I take home? What feels the most significant? Uh, and certainly, you know, I can see in hindsight the way those decisions has probably shaped the way I've remembered him as well. Well, yes. I mean, we, we often hope and assume that objects will be reminders of someone that we loved. Is that how it worked out for you? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it definitely has. And I suppose the thing is, um, though, that it's been maybe a bit more complicated than I thought it might be. I guess I came into this thinking uh, of objects in the way I think a lot of us do as kind of, you know, receptacles for memory. We can kind of use them to store a memory uh, or a moment and sort of pick it up off the shelf and and um, remember it uh, by doing that. But I think actually what has happened and what I've found is it's been a bit more complicated in terms of uh, the ways that the meanings of those objects can change over time uh, and the way the objects themselves can change over time. Uh, and I guess the significances of the memories and the people attached to them can also change for us. So it's kind of a more uh, more dynamic and, and interesting uh, than maybe I had recognised at first. Well, and that came through when you wrote another essay about the attic. You described this as the id mm. space of the books that you'd read. <laughs> I love that. And it, it sounds like the, the meaning of the attic changed for you over time from something a bit kind of threatening mm. and terrible as this dumping ground to, to something else. Yeah, I mean, I grew up reading a lot of those kind of um, Victorian novels uh, where there's these spooky uh, attics. And, and then as a, an adult, have an attic of my own in my home, uh, kind of a less uh, maybe atmospheric and spooky space, but one that has kind of become a repository for all of uh, these objects that, you know, I don't necessarily know what to do with, but also don't want to get rid of. Uh, and you know, in the essay I write about basically, you know, when uh, at the beginning of COVID I was doing kind of what a lot of us were doing then, which was spring cleaning my house. 
uh, and came across uh, a sort of curious object uh, amongst a, a box of childhood mementos, which is basically a little jewellery box containing uh, my own baby teeth, which I had obviously very tenderly saved uh, as a small child. Uh, and sort of working out, you know, a very strange and unsettling object, I think, and, you know, what to do with that, uh, whether to keep it, uh, and, you know, what we kind of do with those kind of reminders of our past selves as well, I, I suppose. Yeah, baby teeth are very unsettling, are they? And as a parent, yeah. <laughs> I really struggle with what to do with them. I feel like I've, I'm a witch now. I've got this drawer full of little envelopes <laughs> full of teeth. Yuck. We're speaking with Gemma Nisbet. Her debut book, The Things We Live With, is out now. And it's a fascinating look at our relationship with objects and memory and family and ourselves too. I, I love the bit about the attic, Gemma, because it, it reminds me how, you know, that we keep some objects long beyond when their utility is finished and even their beauty, as you're talking about that painting that your father used to own, it was really ugly. Mm. But mm. then all that's left is memory or story or emotion. How did you go with the spring cleaning, trying to work out what the meaning of these objects was now? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. You know, um, I suppose, you know, those teeth in particular kind of really brought me into contact in both a physical and sort of um, emotional sense with, you know, this person, that little person I had been when I was, um, you know, saving those teeth and the kind of, uh, I guess, uh, emotional turbulence that you experience as a small child and going into your teens when you're growing up. So it was a way for me to kind of um, remember, um, you know, how it had been uh, at that point in time and also to see, I guess, the continuities of that self uh, with the person that I've become uh, as well as an adult. The book is also uh, goes into depth about the struggles that you have had with your mental health, with anxiety and depression, mm. panic attacks. Mm. Uh, how did you find uh, those issues related to some of the objects that you uh, had collected over the years? Yeah, I mean, it was not really an issue I had necessarily intended to write a lot about coming into this project, but I kind of started to find, uh, and this is one of the ways the objects are interesting to me, is that they were sort of leading me uh, towards certain things, and that was one of them. Uh, and, you know, so I write, for example, uh, I started writing about the uh, collection of fridge magnets that I had amassed um, during the period when I was working as a travel writer for a newspaper, uh, and sort of that led me in a, in a roundabout way to also writing about the mental health crisis that I had experienced uh, also during that period and trying to kind of make sense of that uh, sort of restlessness uh, that that career had engendered for me uh, and the way it maybe uh, had enabled me to avoid things but also needing to uh, confront certain things as well. I love the writing about the fridge magnets. You say that the souvenir mm. appears to simplify the complexity of a place into a piece of plastic. And I, I mm. sometimes feel that we're trying to do that with our lives. We're trying to look back over the arc of our lives and pick out little moments that help it make sense. What do mm. things like the little plastic crocodile remind you of now? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I guess, you know, by writing about them, uh, in this way, I've kind of transformed some of their meaning uh, for myself. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I struggled with, I guess, when I was writing um, these essays in this book is to uh, kind of try to 
encompass some of the complexity of life and of experience of, of other people and ourselves uh, and these objects in them. Uh, and so, you know, the crocodile and, and objects like that, I think, make me think about uh, that process that I've been through and, you know, that kind of search maybe to find um, stories and kind of uh, narrative forms that help to give shape uh, and help me to understand the things I've experienced uh, and, and the role that these objects have played in them. We're speaking with Gemma Nisbet, whose book, The Things We Live With, looks at objects in a really, really new and interesting way. And Gemma, I was struck by the the um, piece about the the souvenirs because you talk about how, you know, we might buy things just because we're expected to buy things on a holiday or on a trip. Mm-hmm. But when you're a travel writer, you, you perhaps also thought about trying to hang on to uh, being away or that something about the sense of that place. But also some of the things brought back how you felt on these trips away and and gave you some insight into what was going on in your mind at the time. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really interested me in writing about the fridge magnets and about those kind of mass-produced souvenirs generally is I think we tend to be a bit dismissive of them. You know, we think they're quite kitsch. Um, Certainly I noticed um, and I write when I was travelling and I would often travel with other travel writers, um, you know, we would all be buying this kind of stuff, but no one was writing about it. Everyone was a bit sheepish about it. Um, but actually, you know, the again, as with the um, kind of uh, family mementos, it seemed to me there was something a bit more interesting going on uh, here in terms of, you know, the ways <clears throat> that they were kind of uh, allowing me to remember the places I'd been and, as you say, um, allowing me to access some of those uh, memories uh, after the fact as well. Mm, they were a conduit to to self-understanding. Mm. Tell us a bit mm. about the auction of Joan Didion's estates because it, it sounds like people were interested in lots of different things, the cookware, the unused notebooks. Mm. But for you it was seashells and beach pebbles. Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, when I was getting to the end of writing this book and I had kind of thought, you know, uh, I'd sort of figured more or less as much as I was going to um, – you know, these issues and these objects, um, a friend, a uh, writer friend messaged me and, and said, oh, have you heard that they're doing an auction of Joan Didion's possessions? Uh, and she's a writer that, you know, I write about uh, in the in the book and uh, has influenced my own work. And so I was quite interested to see uh, what this was. And basically they were auctioning a whole bunch of her uh, possessions, kind of everyday possessions, couches, um, you know, paperweights that had been on her desk, uh, books that she had read, uh, this kind of thing uh, in aid of some charitable causes. Uh, and so I was kind of became quite invested in looking through the catalogue and thinking, you know, what would I buy uh, if I were to want to buy something? And, and these um, collection of seashells and kind of beach pebbles really caught my eye. Uh, I think in large part because uh, I have a similar connection, uh, collection uh, in my own house uh, and, um, you know, a lot of them are um, pebbles that I have uh, collected on my travels. Uh, obviously, my dad was a geologist, so there's a certain kind of significance there. Uh, and among them was uh, a pebble that I had collected uh, on the beach where we'd, we'd scattered his ashes uh, so that kind of, you know, connection really uh, made that meaningful for me. Uh, and it was also interesting for me to see after the auction the kind of incredible sums of money that uh, a lot of these objects had fetched, you know, the sort of, um, you know, couches going for 
$20,000 US and this Good kind Lord. of thing, you know, far, far outweighing their sort of monetary value. So that made me think about, you know, the other kinds of value, I suppose, that we attach to these things. Oh, yeah. The cultural anthropology of objects is fascinating. Mm. Gemma, thanks so much for, for helping us understand a little bit about your relationship to some objects on Life Matters today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Gemma Nisbet's debut book, The Things We Live With, is out now. This is Life Matters on Radio National. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.